encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13 today as we continue our exposition through the book of James. So if you have found your way there, I want to ask you to stand if you're able as we honor the reading of God's Word. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 13. This is the Word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You can take your seats. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, it's indeed a privilege that we have to be together today to open your holy scriptures. Father, would you give us attentive hearts and minds? Remove those distractions from us right now, Lord, that would keep us from hearing your word and from hearing you. We ask for your Holy Spirit now to guide us through the very words he inspired so that we would be further conformed to the image of Christ and so that you would be glorified. So Lord, we ask now for your help. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, one of the things that I always looked forward to in school was recess. During recess, especially this is my elementary school days, during recess, a good number of us in the warm months would always make our way over to this dilapidated tennis court to play kickball and still see it in my, in my mind. I don't think the tennis court exists there anymore, but even when I was a youngster, the tennis court, was the, it was the rusted chain link fence. The, the, the tennis court had, the colors had begun to fade and in the cracks, grass was popping up and, and the, the two posts there for the, the net was still present, the net was not there. And we would use the post as first and third and then the stripe in the back as second. And ball over the fence was obviously a home run. I remember that well. In fact, it was one of the things that I often look forward to and it was a highlight of the day. 
But while I love playing kickball, one of the things that I always dreaded was the pregame draft. You know how that goes. The two best players, they're always the captains. I don't know how that worked. But they always were the captains, and, and we would spend that first five minutes picking and choosing who would be on which team, and there it went. I'll take him, I'll take her, I'll take him. And usually the first three or four rounds, all of the good players were, were snatched, leaving the rest of us to just be randomly chosen to fill out the rest of the teams. It was always a humbling experience because I knew I was not going to be one of the first three or four rounds to be chosen. But once that was over and all of that tension was, was gone by, the game was enjoyable. You know, kickball games were fun. But what it taught me early on, especially in that pre-game draft, was the art of partiality, if you want to call it an art. People favorite, being, fav, uh, being chosen as favorites because of a particular skill or gift that they had, based upon some kind of contribution that they could make, some kind of outward appearance. They, they maybe, maybe it's the new kid in school, and man, this, this, this one looks fast and strong. After all, you didn't want to get on the team with the wrong people. When we come to our text in James chapter 2, James acknowledges that favoritism is something that even Christians struggle with. <laughs> Imagine that. I thought Christians were perfect. Not so much. That's why we need Christ. So immediately here in James chapter 2, he addresses the problem with an imperative in verse one that really fuels and drives the rest of the section. Immediately here, he says, my brothers, show no partiality. Or more literally, do not, with an attitude of favoritism, hold your faith. To show favoritism literally means to receive someone according to their face. For some of us, that's not good news. Embracing someone simply based upon their outward appearance. Judging a person at a superficial kind of level. In other words, James is warning against showing preferential treatment simply because someone looks a certain way. So that's his, that's his command there, that's his imperative, that's the, the exhortation in verse one that really drives the rest of the passage. In verses two through four, he gives an illustration of what that might look like in a church. He says, assume you have a poor man and a rich man enter your assembly and, and special treatment is given to this rich man while you neglect the poor man or treat him unfavorably. So he gives us the exhortation and then the illustration and then in verses five through 13, he gives us really the rationale or the reasons why we should not play favorites in the church. So you're tracking with me. Tried to outline that, that, those 13 verses for us. Command, exhortation, Verses two through four, illustration or example, verses five through 13, here's the rationale, the reasons why we should not do something that's showing preferential treatment to one over the other. 
We're gonna spend most of our time this morning in verses five through 13 as we unpack the rationale as to why we should not show favoritism within the people of God, with, within, the, within the family of God, why, why we should not show preferential treatment, why we should not play favorites. And I'm just going to assume, based upon my knowledge of us as humans, fallen as we are as sinners, that all of us at some point, in some way, in some level, do this. Is that okay? I'm just gonna assume you show partiality in some way. I do it, all right? Yeah, so we all do this. Three reasons why showing favoritism is not in step with our calling as Christians. Let's walk through these together. Number one, number one, showing partiality stands in contrast to God's salvation. Look at verses five through seven. James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? but you've dishonored this poor man. So here he's, he's calling, to, to calling the Christians here, the believers to, to accountability. He's, he's explaining to them why that showing favoritism is problematic. It does not line up with the gospel. It doesn't line up with salvation. And so he, he comes at this really from two different angles if you wanna look at it this way. The first one is, is really what our perspective as a Christian ought to be. He begins the chapter, he says, do not with an attitude of favoritism hold your faith or show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying partiality and faith in Christ are not compatible. If you show favoritism, if you show partiality, preferential treatment to one over the other, you're not acting like a Christian. That's what verse one really says. It's not in step with the gospel. Don't hold your faith as one who shows partiality. So he, he begins there saying it's not Christian to do this. It's not, it's not in step with the gospel. It's not, in, it's not consistent with one's faith. But then the second perspective, so he's, he's kind of shining light on who we ought to be as Christians, and now he, he shines the light on the poor person. In verse five, he says, listen. That's an emphatic kind of statement. Right? Sometimes when I get my kids, I, I say, look at me. Because <laughs> they're not looking when I'm trying to talk. Look at me. That's what James said. He said, listen. This is important. Let's get this straight. You cannot show partiality as a Christian by ignoring certain kinds of people, namely here the poor, because the poor are very much objects of God's grace as anyone else. It's interesting that the very first argument that James uses to warn Christians against the practice of favoritism is rooted in the doctrine of election. It might sound surprising to us this morning, but that's exactly what he says in verse five. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen? God's sovereign grace at work here in electing humanity, electing a people for himself. He's saying, listen, the poor are part of this group. Do not make distinctions and treat the rich better than you do the poor because has not God chosen the poor? Specifically to be rich in faith? Friends, they may be poor materially, but spiritually they are abounding in riches. 
Notice how God's election of them also results in a genuine love for God. Look at verse five. Anytime we talk about the doctrine of election, we also need to talk about human responsibility, right? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to who? Those who love him. Those who are chosen are also those who love God. Those who have responded to the gospel in saving faith and have a genuine affection now wrought by the Holy Spirit in them to love God. These poor people materially are objects of God's electing mercy and now are the same people who love God. Don't show favoritism towards them. Rich person. God's sovereign grace and the human response are always present together in salvation. This is the way Paul kind of highlights the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, what? Chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Friends, listen right here. Look at me, right? Don't ever boast in yourself when it comes to your salvation. You did not save you. God saved you. To him alone be the glory. To him alone be the praise for what he alone can do. God saved you. And God saves poor people just like he saves rich people and everyone in between. People James initially wrote to were mostly poor. The early church was comprised of mainly poor Christians. And so many of these congregations would have been poor. And so you can imagine the struggling poor congregation that all of a sudden sees Mr. Moneybags walk in, right? The text, it says, wearing a gold ring. Literally, that's gold fingers. See this rich person, all of a sudden, they flock to this rich person because of what? this person might can bring to the table for the sake of this probably poor and struggling congregation while ignoring and abandoning one who is probably just like them in many regards or maybe struggling even below them. So you can see the temptation and James condemns this approach because everyone is on level ground at the foot of the cross. Now, you need to notice what this is not saying, right? It's helpful to always understand what the Bible is saying, but sometimes it's helpful, helpful for clarification to understand what it's also not stating. Here's one of those moments where we need to understand what the Bible is not saying. James is not saying that only the poor are objects of God's electing grace and therefore only the poor can be saved. He is not saying that. It's not some kind of liberation theology. God is not saying only poor people can be Christians. He is saying poor people are part of my redemptive plan. Don't ignore them. Don't neglect them. Don't abandon them. Don't show favoritism towards the rich person while neglecting the poor person. Now, even though many of these early believers were poor, we know that there are plenty of examples of rich Christians, even in the Bible. Think about Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the Ethiopian eunuch, and many of the Gentiles who were brought in to the faith, many of them very wealthy. So again, this is not an anti-rich sermon. Just stating the facts. Listen, 
Don't neglect the poor. Now, it's not an argument, like I've said, that God only loves the poor. It's simply an argument that God loves the poor just as much as he does anyone else. In fact, if we're honest, when you read the Bible, and even in your human experience, who is it that seems most responsive to the gospel? The poor. When you read the gospels, and the poor often were flocking to Jesus, while the rich, they could care less. It's not an accident that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, or chapter 19, verse 23 and 24, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That should have startled about all of us in here because all of us are rich. If you drove to church today, you are rich compared to the rest of the world. If you live in a house that actually has heat and air, you're rich. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Listen, it's not that God is making it difficult for rich people to get into heaven. It's, the problem is that rich people are making it difficult for rich people to get into heaven. They're more driven and compelled to their things. They don't find themselves as desperate and needy as someone with little. The poor have nothing else to cling to and are often quick to receive the gospel. James is saying, so don't ignore this poor person in favor of the rich. I think if you were to ask James, he would also say, no, you shouldn't ignore the rich person either. But the focus here is on the poor person. The, the neglect is on the poor person, and so that's why he's elevating this, this, this person who's, who's poor and saying, focus here, folks. Don't show favoritism. Don't neglect this, this one without. Sought to speak to us, even inform us on how we should approach ministry. You know, today we... We hear a lot about systemic discrimination and systemic racism. And I agree that those things exist in our culture. We might have disagreements about to the extent in which they exist, but friends, it's, it's without saying that these things are problematic in our culture and, and around the world. But what we are being told here is that while such systemic problems may exist in the world, there is no place no place for these kinds of problems to be present in the church. When we begin to pick and choose who we greet, who we welcome, who we extend hospitality to based upon some external factor, friends, we are not at all reflecting the character of God. In fact, James chapter two, verse four says that is evil. It's evil. This can be done in many ways. We can show preference based upon someone's educational level, someone's economic status, 
We show preference by only engaging those of same race or ethnicity. We can show preference based upon someone's influence or authority. We can even show preference based upon someone's political affiliation. We can show preference based upon our social interest, and on and on we can go. Let me get more practical. It can show up in many ways in the church. It can show up in your selection of a home group. It can show up in who you engage in conversation after church. It can show up in which guest we welcome and those that we don't. It can show up in how we handle prayer requests, what we pray for, who we pray for. It can show up in who we're quick to invite into our homes and who we don't. It can show up in, in areas in which we seek to do outreach and areas in which we don't. On and on we can go. There's this kind of attitude stands quite contrast to God's salvation. Brothers and sisters, instead of engaging people based upon their income level, the color of their skin, the position they might have or don't have, or how they vote, we need to see everyone as bearing the image of God valuable and strive to welcome them and embrace them as image bearers and love them. Regardless of what external appearance they may have, regardless of what kind of power or influence they may have or don't have, regardless of who they are. Friends, we need to realize the glory of God is on display because he calls many types of people into the fold. Don't neglect the poor. Generally speaking, when local churches tend to reflect one group over another, there are exceptions to this because in some places there is only one kind of group. But generally speaking, when local churches tend to reflect one socioeconomic class or ethnicity or age group or something else, favoritism is likely a problem. And I would just argue that most churches struggle with this at some level. Stands in contrast to the salvation of God. Number two, it stands in violation, showing favoritism stands in violation to God's law. Look at verses eight through 12. Eight through 12. James Again, kind of ramps up his rationale here against discrimination in the church. And so his second reason against showing partiality is that it stands in violation of the law of God. Verse eight, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, so he, he refers here to the royal law, God's supreme standard, the sum, sum and stu, substance of God's revealed will for us. This is God's law. And we know that um, there's much we could say about the law of God and my goodness, there's been much written. But Jesus was quizzed about the law. You remember this in Matthew chapter 22? Jesus is often asked about the law because many often thought he was breaking the law. In fact, he was not. He fulfilled the law. Matthew chapter 22, we see in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, leave it to the lawyers, right? Asked him a question to test him. Jesus loves lawyers too, right? Just want to make that clear. Uh, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the great commandment? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So now James picks up on this summary of the law that Jesus gave. And specifically, he identifies this second of the two greatest commandments, love your neighbor as yourself, and he brings that to bear upon the situation here at hand as he's, as he's exhorting the people of God to, to welcome and embrace all people by not showing partiality. And he says two things here. He says, if you do love your neighbor, thus fulfilling the royal law, you do well, good job. But if you show partiality, you show that you, do not lo- no, that you do not love your neighbor and instead show that you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And then James takes us a step further as he focuses now on transgressing the law. He presses a bit further to demonstrate just how serious violating God's law is. See, I think that that we don't feel the weight of that today. We don't think a thing about speeding, do we? Not even on our mind when we speed. See, see, that's a law. This is how, how weak law has become on our hearts. And we're thinking about God's law. Everybody be watching their speed on the way home today. He shows us the unity of the law by explaining that when one breaks one law, it incurs guilt for the law as a whole. Now, he's writing to a largely Jewish population, most likely at the time, and many of them had probably been conditioned to believe in their their works-based mentality that God judges on a scale, right? God kind of looks at you and says, okay, let's see all the good you've done, See all the bad you've done? Let's just hope your good outweighs your bad. And if it does, then that's fine. We'll welcome you in. That's probably how many of the Jewish people thought at the time. That if we do enough good, it will somehow outweigh the bad and we'll be okay. And so if someone kept most of God's laws, they shouldn't fear about judgment. Well, the problem is that God's law does not work that way. Not even close. God God doesn't judge on a scale. He doesn't use this divine scale to weigh our good and bad. His law doesn't work that way. Another way that we could think about this is by contrasting God's law to human law. God's law and human law don't work the same way. Think about this. In human law, the consequences can range from a small fine to the death penalty depending on what infraction you've committed against the law. So all human laws are not necessarily equal in their consequence. But when we break one of God's law, we are accountable to it as a whole. Think about it this way, and maybe I'm oversimplifying, but when you break God's law, no matter what law you break, death penalty. There's no other consequence. There's no prison in God's scheme. Well, actually there is, it's called hell for eternity and that's where you suffer. Not all laws are equal in human laws, but when we break God's law, we're accountable for the entire thing. Do you see that's what he says in verse 10? 
For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And then just make this up. It's right there in verse 10. Well, you hear that and you're like, how can there be any hope? Because, I mean, I've not killed anybody, I don't think. But I know I've been greedy. So you're saying that if I've been greedy or selfish, that I'm now accountable to the entire law and responsible? Yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. And all of a sudden we feel this weight because we all have broken God's law and we know if this is true, which it is, we will all now be held accountable. So how can there be any hope? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by everything. Written in the book of the law and do them. You say, well, pastor, you're just adding the weight, adding the guilt. I can't do it all. You're under a curse. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us, here's the good news, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the righteous shall live by faith, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see what Paul is saying? He said, you cannot be saved by keeping the law. No one can do that. You, let me just translate that. Good works, they're good, but they can't save you. They just can't. If you're trying to good your way into heaven, you're not gonna make it to heaven. You're under a curse, because none of us can keep the law in its entirety. If you've broken one command, you're held accountable for all of them. This is the holiness of God being revealed here, his holy standard. He, he's not saying, hey, if you make a 70 on the test, you pass. Friends, this is pass or fail, 100% or no percent. You're either 100% holy or you're not. And you're like, no, I'm not holy, I'm, 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 I'm not. None of us are, friend. But the good news is, is that even though we are all under a curse, the scripture tells us that Christ became a curse for us. We are law breakers, Christ is the law keeper. He, he lived a life that we should have lived, perfect in obedience and fulfillment of the law of God, and yet he died the death we all deserve to die by being nailed to a cross and having the full weight of judgment placed upon his shoulders so that whoever would believe in him, their sins would be washed white as snow, they would be forgiven, they would be adopted into the family of God, and 
saved. Friends, that's that's what Christ has done for you. He's redeemed us from this curse. And so when you read James and, and and you're thinking, man, if I break one law, I'm held accountable for the whole law. That's right. But don't try to find a way of hope in the law. Let the law be that guide that points you away from yourself and what you can do to the one who did it perfectly in the place of sinners. His name is Jesus. Trust in him. Rest in him. Believe in him, friend. He's the only one that can rescue from this dilemma. He's the only one because he's the only one that's kept God's law perfectly and yet went to the cross to die in the place of lawbreakers. It's a beautiful reality. Only Christ can do this. And so if you're here, if you're here today and you're thinking, wow, this just sounds crushing. How, how can I even be right with God if I can't even keep his law? If I break one law, I'm held accountable to the whole thing. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ and rest in him. And he will deliver you. What is our hope? See, showing partiality is a violation of the law of God. Now, just because we are redeemed from the law through Christ doesn't mean the law is something we should totally ignore. Doug Moo put it this way. He said, God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey him. In fact, it sets it on new footing. Friends, as Christians, we should care deeply about God's law, not as something that can give us salvation. It can't. But we should should care deeply about God's law because in the law, God reveals his holy character and his divine will. And the last thing we should want to do as one of God's people is to live a life contrary to his revealed will. So we want to honor him and live in light of that supreme and holy standard. It stands in contrast. Partiality stands in contrast to this. It stands in contrast to God's salvation. It stands in contrast to God's law. And then finally, it, stands, it, it ignores the reality of God's judgments. Look at verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen, there's one fact that is true of every single person in this room. All of us will stand before God and give account one day. All of us. All of us will stand before God and give account for our lives. For the unbeliever, so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that will be a moment that seals your condemnation for all of eternity. But for the believer, you too will stand before God. You too will give accounts. We know that our final standing with God is kept secure through faith in the finished work of Christ, but 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. 
Friends, to show partiality to others not only goes against God's salvation, against God's character revealed in his law, but it also makes light of the future judgment which we will all undergo. Friends, I just ask you, how often does that future judgment inform your behavior or your attitudes? I think for Christians sometimes, we are guilty of thinking this way. I think we're guilty of thinking, Jesus kept the law when I couldn't. He died for my sins so that I could be saved. I'm good. Good to go. Yeah, I might have made some mistakes here and there. Yeah, sorry about that. Friends, that makes light of the gospel, one. It makes light of God's judgment, number two. If that is your attitude concerning sin, I'm, I would be as bold to say that I'm not sure that you've understood the gospel. Friends, to show partiality, which is a violation of God's law, which stands in contrast to God's character and, and his salvation, to, to show partiality, to, to favor one person over the other, makes light of the future judgment which you will have. That should inform your behavior. God's salvation certainly should inform it. God's law should guide and direct it. And the future judgment should also inform how you live and how you act and think in this world today. You're gonna be held accountable for that, for that one day. We'll all stand before the Lord one day and he will hold us all accountable to how we treated one another. So speak and so act, he says as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So speak and so act as those who will be judged. He's speaking to Christians. Friends, as you think about that, I don't want you to miss verse 13. It would be easy to kind of wrap up right there and tell a good story and say amen. But don't miss verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. When you show partiality or show favoritism, you are not showing mercy. You are revealing pride. In light of our future judgment, we need to remember this principle. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If you were known at school for only pursuing people you think are good enough to be around you and to somehow maintain your reputation, friends, judgment will be without mercy for you because you are not a merciful person. If you as a Christian only interact with those or welcome those or greet those or invite people into your homes that are like you, you're being partial. You're a violator of God's law. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. In other words, if you are one who has not shown mercy to others, you don't consistently show mercy to others, here's, the, here's, here's what you need to know. Don't expect to receive mercy from God.
The one who does not extend mercy to others will face harsh judgment in the end. Well, how can that be? If what you said was true about Jesus becoming a curse for us, isn't that forgiven? I think this is what James is saying. If you prove to be one that is unmerciful to others and partiality is part of that reflection of your heart, you may ultimately be proving that you are one that's not been savingly impacted by God's divine mercy yourself. Here's the point. If you are one who regularly refuses to extend mercy to others, if you are a person that shows partiality or favoritism, then you have much to fear on judgment day. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. But friends, couldn't we say that the opposite is true? Cursed are the unmerciful, for they shall not be shown mercy. But then he ends, mercy triumphs over judgment. A truly merciful person is one who has not only known the mercy of God, but will also stand in the judgment Don't neglect that last verse as you think about your own heart. Friends, as we close, there are two ways I think that we should examine our hearts. One, individually. The last thing you should be doing right now is thinking about how unmerciful and partial someone else is. If you're doing that, stop it and repent. Because this word is here to confront you as well as them but you're not going to, they're not going to be standing before you on judgment day. They're going to be standing before God, and so are you. How is my own heart when it comes to favoritism and preference? Ask yourself those hard questions. Invite others that are close to you to help you answer that question. Ask someone that knows you well, your spouse, a close friend, Am I a partial person? Do I tend to play favorites? Because I sure don't want to be that kind of person. Friends, invite that kind of critique into your life and it will serve you well. Two, corporately. How are we as a church? Well, that largely depends on how you are as an individual, right? A good question to ask, is our smile wider and our embrace warmer to those who seem more outwardly desirable? Do we tend to flock to those new people who seem like they have it more together, seem like we have more in common with? How can we give ourselves more faithfully to the attitude and heart of God. I think a good question for us to consider is how, as we, as individuals and certainly as a congregation, how can we be more faithful in our welcome to the downtrodden, the outcast, and the poor? Friends, we live in a very wealthy county. 
Most of us are wealthy. When it, and then when I mean wealthy, you're extremely wealthy. And yet, we still have those around us that aren't. How can we give ourselves more faithfully to, to invest in them? And if God has chosen the poor and the weak in the world to shame the rich and the strong, then what ought that to say about our own reach as a gospel church? Perhaps that's a great question to discuss in your home groups this week. Where are we missing it? How can we do, not just better, but how can we be more like Christ? How can we reflect the gospel more beautifully in our community? Friends, showing partiality is not just bad hospitality. It is pure evil. It does not align with God's salvation. It violates God's law. And it dismisses God's judgment. Friends, may God give us grace to be honest with our own hearts and respond in a way that reflects his holy character as we seek to embrace and love people regardless of who they are and how much they might have and what they may look like. Because that, that friends, is ministry compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be faithful to that and let's repent for where we have not been faithful. Let's pray. Father, the real temptation that many of us may feel right now is to hear this word to justify in our own hearts how we've not really been partial and to go on into our day and into the week as if nothing changes. But Father, I know for even my own heart that that would be the most foolish thing I could do. God, would you search the depths of our hearts and would you help us see those dark places in our lives where we have neglected faithfulness to you and how that exhibits itself in love for others. Surely, Lord, there's no one in this room that would admit that they've loved their neighbor as themselves perfectly. God, we know that all of us have fallen short. All of us have shown partiality. We've, we've given preferential treatment to some over others. Father, I pray that where that has happened, that you would expose that, that we might repent. God, that we would be more aware moving forward and more clear on your heart, on your mercy. Father, would you help us to respond today in a manner that's consistent with the gospel, not a manner that's consistent with our worldly 
examples. Father, would you help us to take seriously your law? We're thankful for your law, Lord, the fact that it exposes our own sin and that it drives us to the one that can save us from our sin, and that is Christ. And Father, we know that one day we will stand before you and have to give accounts for our lives. And Lord, if we're Christians, we know that we will be kept secure on that day and that we will enter into heaven. But Lord, you do reward us. You do give us reward. And Father, I pray that even our obedience to you as believers would be in light of that day. God, that we would be able to stand on that day and give testimony to your great work in our lives. And Father, if there's someone in this room that, that doesn't know you, they're, they're not a follower of Jesus, and Lord, that, that that day is alarming to them. God, would you stir their hearts and effectually warm their hearts in a way that would embrace you in faith. Father, help us to respond today in a manner that pleases you, that is consistent with your holy character and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name.